Well, this evening we are continuing our series on some of the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to our passage tonight, Luke 14, uh, verses 25 to 35. We'll be focusing on those verses tonight, particularly the twin parables. We get two for the price of one tonight. Uh, Twin parables here in these verses, Luke 14, and I'll begin reading at verse 25. This is God's holy word. Let's listen attentively as it's read. Now, great crowds accompanied him, that's Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here we're going to end God's uh, reading, our reading of God's Word tonight. Well, in our last look at Jesus' parable, uh, the parable of the barren fig tree, Our Lord Jesus described for us the characteristics of the kingdom of God that should be present in our lives. And and Jesus showed us that as those who belong to the kingdom of God, as those who follow Him, we ought to be bearing in our lives real spiritual fruit. We mustn't be like the barren fig tree, which is worthy only to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, in the parables before us tonight, Jesus goes a little bit further, and He says that that spiritual fruit of the Christian life should endure until the very end. Uh, the, The Christian commitment to God is not a commitment and His kingdom that is only partial or temporary as long as life is easy. The commitment of following Jesus Christ is to be absolute It's to be uncompromising, and that commitment, that discipleship costs something. It's very costly. It's a commitment that is very different from the false gospel of cheap grace that is preached in so many so-called churches today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a German theologian, described cheap grace in this way. Uh, 
He said, cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say. And so everything in the Christian life can remain as it was. Let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself of the world's standards in every sphere of life and not aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. In summary, he says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's the forgiveness of sins without the personal confession of sins. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. A false concept of grace. Well, in the parables before us, we're going to become very quickly alerted to the fact that the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ directly contradict this false gospel of cheap grace. In fact, as we look at these parables tonight, we might be surprised at just how costly it is to follow Jesus, because being a disciple, being a follower of Christ does involve radical changes to our lives. In fact, Jesus says here, that the Christian life is all about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Him. And there really is no other kind of discipleship that possibly could please Christ. And so, as we look at these parables tonight, notice that if we would follow Christ, if we would be His disciples, if we would bear His name before a watching world, then we must first carefully consider, we must weigh the cost of that decision, and we must consider the kind of commitment that Christ requires of us to follow Him. We're going to look at three things tonight together. First of all, the conditions of discipleship. Secondly, the warnings of discipleship, and then finally, the blessings of discipleship. Well, if we were to look a few chapters or back in Luke's gospel, we would notice in chapter 9 that Jesus has now set His face to go to Jerusalem. And we know that in Jerusalem, Jesus would not be exalted or lifted up as an earthly king. That is what the Jews expected, perhaps, but that is not what would happen he would not meet a coronation party in Jerusalem. He would not ascend an earthly throne. He would be arrested. He would be questioned and tried by wicked men. He would be nailed to an accursed tree, a cross, and he would die there like a common criminal. And so, as he prepares personally to pay the ultimate cost for our redemption, Jesus turns to the crowds that have been following him up till now. He looks them square in the eye, and he calls them to think long and hard about how far they're willing to go as his disciples. What kind of companions are they, really? Are they following Jesus purely out of curiosity? They want to be in the know. They want to know whether he's going to perform another one of those great miracles they've heard about. Is their motivation 
the hope for personal glory and reward. Perhaps Jesus will give them a place of prominence in His kingdom when He comes to overthrow Rome. Or are they simply going along with the crowd, tapping into a fad? Before they commit their lives to Jesus, He would have them count the cost of being a disciple, a follower of a man who's condemned to death, despised, forsaken by the world. And in verses 26 and 27 here, Jesus really lays it all on the line for these would-be disciples of His. And He says that the condition of discipleship is that they must be completely committed They must be all in, as it were, for the sake of Christ, willing to give up their most cherished possessions, their comforts, their relationships, even their own lives. Very much unlike the cheap grace that is preached in so many churches today, Jesus says that discipleship comes with a cost. It makes some serious demands of us. And here in verses 26 and 27, we have several conditions for discipleship. In verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's a condition of discipleship. Now, we read this and we sort of wonder, what does Jesus mean here? After all, doesn't Jesus call us elsewhere in the Scriptures to love even our enemies? Why would He call us to hate our loved ones? It's important to remember that this phrase, to hate, can in the Scriptures be an expression that means to love less. For example, in Genesis 29, uh, we read that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. He had eyes for Rachel less or more so than for Leah. And later it says in that passage, Leah was hated. And so here Jesus is saying that to be His disciple, uh, your allegiance to Him must be greater than, it should supersede even your allegiance, your commitment to your family and your own life. Christ is to be the object of our highest loyalty. You see, Jesus is calling for us to to change our understanding of our own identity, that it doesn't uh, revolve around our families or our social status or our wealth, but our identity is characterized by faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So great is their love for Christ to be that all other loves, all other commitments seem like hatred in comparison. So great is the cost and the condition of discipleship. But there's another condition here that Jesus lays out in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus says that disciples of His should live every moment of their lives as if they too, like Him, like Jesus, were condemned to death by crucifixion for their commitment to God and His Word. Caring little 
for social status or popularity, disinterested in the accumulation of wealth and power for a comfortable future. You see, the cross-bearing disciple is someone who willingly gives up all things if necessary to pursue the greatest prize, the highest treasure of identifying with Jesus in His sufferings. Well, Jesus began His teaching about the conditions of discipleship by speaking to anyone, anyone who would be His follower. And so you see, this is an open invitation for all of us to count the cost of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And I ask you tonight, what are you willing to give up to follow Him? Are you willing to give up any thought, any practice that is contrary to Scripture to follow Jesus Christ? Are you willing to confess your secret sins, the sins that have gone on for so long that they almost seem respectable now? Would you give those up, surrender them, and be refreshed by the Lord? Would you relinquish lesser loyalties and possessions, your family, your homes, your successful careers, even the world's good opinion of you, if you were asked to leave all of it behind and follow your Savior even unto death? Or do these earthly possessions compete with your love for Christ? Do they get in the way of your complete service to Him? Will we give up our self-righteousness and our high, overly high opinion of ourselves, our judgmental scorn of others? Will we give those up and rest only in the salvation that is ours by God's grace alone? J.C. Ryle says this, it does cost something to be a real Christian according to the standard of the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome. There are battles to be fought. There are sacrifices to be made. There is an Egypt to be forsaken. There's a wilderness to be passed through. There is a cross to be carried, and there is a race to be run. Conversion is not putting a person in an armchair, a lazy boy, and taking him safely into heaven. Conversion is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. And so we must consider the cost and the conditions of discipleship and be willing, if it be the case, to give up all things to follow Jesus Christ. But secondly, Jesus warns us he warns us that if we fail to do that, if we fail to count the cost of discipleship before we set out to follow Him, then disaster awaits us. If we start out on the road of the Christian life without truly weighing the cost, weighing the kind of commitment that Christ demands of us, then we may later fall away and, and perish, and our original confession of Jesus will prove to be a sad fiction from the very start. And it's to illustrate that point, the conditions of true discipleship, the kind that perseveres to the very end, it's to illustrate that, that Jesus tells the crowd these twin parables. The first one we find beginning in verse 28. 
Jesus tells the account of a man who desires to build a tower. Very likely he is a farmer. He wants a place to store his farming equipment or perhaps some of his produce. And and he begins the project, he sets the foundation, and then he realizes he doesn't have enough money to finish the job. And the neighbors walk past and they jeer and they laugh that this man, foolish as he was, started a project that he could not finish. What's Jesus' point here in telling this parable? His message is this, that those who would confess to love and follow Christ are warned that they must first count the cost to see if they will persevere until the very end. Jesus calls those who would be His followers to take stock of themselves, to look at their situation, and to ask, can I afford to follow Christ my whole life long, or is my understanding of what it means to be a Christian too shallow, too idealistic, so that I'm like the the, the seed sown on the rocky soil in Matthew 13? I respond eagerly, perhaps impetuously, to the Word of God, but because I have no root, I fall away quickly during times of trouble and persecution. A follower of Jesus should ask themselves, am I like the rich fool of Luke 12 who pretends to be interested in God but is mostly concerned about storing up earthly riches and is not rich towards God? This parable warns the the half-hearted, lukewarm disciple who's become apathetic. Will you remain true to your confession? Will you finish the race? Will you complete the tower? Will you remain committed to the very end? The second parable that Jesus tells here in verses 31 and 32 has a very similar meaning, but a more serious situation. The story here is told of a king who has a relatively small army compared to the king that he's going up against in war. He must decide whether he can be victorious in battle before sending his troops to war. And if he cannot be successful, he must call for peace. He must call for a truce before he sends his troops to the slaughter. Again, the message is very much the same. Those who would follow Jesus must consider wisely and seriously through a mature self-probing whether we are committed to following Christ with the resources that He provides. Just as a wise king would not go into battle with a formidable enemy if only if victory were truly possible, or he would call a truce if defeat were certain, so a true Christian disciple must be decisive, must be committed to the course. But we look back on the Scriptures and we're reminded that the Bible contains many sad accounts of those who failed to count the cost of discipleship, only to wither away in times of trouble, in times of difficulty. We think of the frail Israelites who, as they trudged through the wilderness, a wilderness of trial and trouble, they often forgot God. They claimed to prefer the, the slavery of Egypt over God's will for them. We read in 1 Corinthians 10, many of them perished in their sin. God was not pleased with most of them. 
think about the early disciples of Jesus. When they first heard Jesus' words, they rejoiced. They marveled at His, at His many miracles. They thought He was a wonderful man to follow. But then we read in John 6 that they turned back. They no longer followed Him. When they heard that repentance, that suffering, that cross-bearing was part of following Jesus Christ. And the sad reality, brothers and sisters, is that, that this same thing occurs far too often in the church today. Certainly, it takes place among adults, but I think we see it show up far too often, especially among the young people of our church. It grieves us as church overseers and as pastors and as members, as we watch as our children uh, raised in a covenant home, educated in the church, come here before us to profess their faith, giving a verbal profession of their faith in Jesus. But then the allurements of the world take root, and they go off and they are exposed to ungodly attractions and faithless ideologies, and they find that the cost of obeying Christ, the cost of following Him, is higher than they're willing to pay. And they didn't count the cost when they set out to follow Christ. And the world's approval, the world's styles, the world's pleasures outweigh their commitment to their Creator and their Savior. And gradually, we don't see them as often as we want to, and then suddenly we don't see them at all. And like Jesus says in the last part of these verses, 34 to 35, like salt that has lost its saltiness, becoming utterly worthless, they perish because they did not count the cost of discipleship, proving in the end that they were never genuinely committed to Christ at all. See, Jesus' message is clear, verse 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Young people and old, Christ desires, Christ deserves your full and uncompromising commitment, not half-hearted, occasional volunteer work on your own terms or when it's convenient for you. Well, there's no question, there's no question that Jesus' message is difficult to hear, it convicts us. But I want you to notice finally that Jesus is not discouraging us from discipleship. He's not discouraging us from following Him. He's not teaching us that the conditions for discipleship are so great and so difficult that none of us could ever possibly be a follower of Jesus Christ. He is certainly not telling us that we should focus our attention on our own works and our own efforts rather than seeking the grace of God at every turn of our lives. Notice what Jesus says in verse 35. He says here, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's how he concludes the teaching of these twin parables. Jesus says that only those whose ears 
have been opened by the Spirit of God, by His grace, can receive this message and can respond to this message. Those whose ears have been opened are the ones who will be encouraged and will be strengthened by these parables to follow Jesus to the very end. Only those whose hearts have been made receptive by God's Spirit in this message will recognize that the Christian call to discipleship, because it is so immensely costly, is therefore immensely valuable and meaningful and blessed. You see, Jesus wants us to count the cost of discipleship. He wants us to consider all its loss for the sake of Christ so that we can enter the exciting and blessed life of true discipleship, which has all sorts of blessings for us, all sorts of benefits for those who would follow Jesus Christ to the very end. I want to just close briefly by looking at a few of these blessings or benefits of Christian discipleship. And James Boyce, who I know some of you are studying right now in Bible studies, he draws our attention to some marvelous benefits for those who have counted the cost of Christian discipleship. Just four briefly. First, when we confess our sins and repent of our sins and give them up, we experience the joy of the forgiveness of sins. We receive the blessing of the joy of holiness and, and living in the freedom and the light of the truth. Look what we read in 1 John 1. We read this often. Whoops. Excuse me. We read this often as a confession of sin and an assurance of pardon. 1 John 1, 5 through 10, we read this. This is the message that we've heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him, we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. John goes on and he says, but those who claim to be without sin deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. But when we confess our sins openly, honestly, trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. When we give up our sin, when we surrender it, we receive the joyous blessing of holiness and the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. Secondly, when we count the cost, when we give up our self-righteousness, we gain the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith, a righteousness that is perfect a righteousness that is indestructible, a righteousness that makes us forever acceptable to God. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 8 and 9 rejoices in this. He says, um, indeed, I count everything as loss. He's talking about his former life as a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisee. If anybody could be righteous before God on account of their own obedience, it was Paul. At least he thought so. But he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as, as rubbish in order that I may gain Jesus Christ. When we toss aside 
and give up our self-righteousness and look to Jesus Christ alone for His righteousness, we gain it and we will never lose it. It makes us acceptable before God forever. Third, when we count the cost and forsake the world, we will most certainly pay a high price. Our friends will despise us. The world will reject us as they rejected Jesus Christ. They will take our rights away, to be sure. But we have the blessed promise, once again, of 1 John 4 and 5. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And the one who is in you, Jesus says, or John says, is greater than the one who is in the world. We have conquered through Jesus Christ. Finally, when we give our all to the Lord Jesus Christ, holding nothing back, Christ gives us all that we need to run the race of the Christian life with endurance, with strength. As we look to the founder and the perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12 says, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When we give our all to the Lord Jesus Christ, He promises that He reigns now from the hand of God, and He is interceding for you, and He will strengthen you by His power, by His Spirit, to persevere to the very end. Look to Him, the founder and perfecter of your faith who will enable you to be His faithful disciple. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we thank You that You have given us all that we need to live the Christian life in a full, in a committed, in an uncompromising way. Lord, You deserve our full service. And so we pray, O Lord, that You would not allow us to be distracted by uh, the material idols of this world but that we would give ourselves to You promptly and sincerely, our full hearts, our full service, that You might be glorified and praised through us. Strengthen us to weigh the cost of following Christ. And even, Lord, if it should require of us the giving up of our families and our cherished possessions, even our own lives, give us the courage, give us the faith, to follow you to the very end, knowing that a great reward awaits those who trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We rejoice in the cross of Jesus Christ, where the greatest display of love and of self-sacrifice was given. We're going to sing about that cross. We're going to sing about our Lord Jesus Christ now, by turning to number 338, when I survey the wondrous cross, we'll sing all four of those stanzas as we stand to sing.